Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razlazan. On this week's show, we first get an update on the presidential elections in Tunisia with the U.S.-based Tunisian scholar Mohamed Hammami. Later in the program, Silicon Valley-based Algerian activist Camila Kraba joins us to talk about how Facebook has been systematically lending its support to golf-based fake accounts designed to sabotage Algeria's pro-democracy movement. Stay with us. Tunisians went to the poll on September 15th to select their new president, and out of 26 candidates, two emerged as finalists for the runoff, which will take place on October 6th. Both finalists are political outsiders, underscoring Tunisians' rejection of the status quo and their disappointment in established parties. To get an update on the presidential elections in Tunisia, Khalil spoke with Tunisian-born scholar Mohamed Hammami of Wesleyan University, who's just returned from Tunis. Mohamed, uh, two candidates in Tunisia's presidential election are left now for the second round. Qais Saeed and Nabil Qarwi. Let's start with Qarwi. What is his current status and what might happen if he actually wins? Would a constitutional crisis ensue? And absent an established constitutional court, who would be the arbiter in such a fight? According to EZ, to the commission in charge of the organization of the election, they would still announce Qarwi if he wins. So they will announce that he will be the winner and the parliament will be in charge of dealing with that problem. So it's very unclear. Like you said, we might find ourselves in a situation of constitutional crisis if this happens. So the stakes are high, I think. And it looks like, it's hard to predict, but it looks like Qais Saeed has the advantage right now. He's got the momentum. Tell us a little bit about him. He seems to have surprised all the pundits. Who is Qais Saeed and what does he stand for, as far as you can tell? Yeah, so Qais Saeed is professor of law. He used to teach international law, and now he's focusing more on constitutional law. He became a public figure just after the revolution, when he started posing the way the political elite kind of captured the revolutionary momentum and organized elections based on party lists to create a new constitutional assembly for him. This would be against the revolutionary dynamic, and he was more in favor of individual-based lists that would allow the emergence of local and regional leaders were involved in the, in the revolution. So this, the, we can find the very first videos of him on YouTube in April 2011. Before, he was unknown by the general public, but still known within the legal elites, the jurists, students, and politicians who, are, who studied at law school of Tunis. But he became much more popular throughout the the constitutional drafting process when he was not only critiquing the way the Constitution Assembly was formed, but also the approach that has been taken. According to him, in a post-revolutionary context, we should use new ideas, a new what he calls new political theory, uh, and not reproducing the same mechanism that has been used before. So... His position 
against the elite was came up very early. And in 2014, he was already one of the most popular political figure in the country. If we go back to the polls at that time, we can even find videos of journalists asking him since then if he was considering running for the elections. But he refused at that time, even though some of his fans, I would say, if not supporters, collected the signature required for the candidacy for the presidency in 2014. So people were pushing him at that time to present himself, but he refused. So this time, he, we saw him again leading the polls since at least the end of 2018. And he was persistently and consistently the number two in the polls. And so claiming that it's a big surprise is actually interesting, which is I'm not blaming you, of course, but I'm saying that a big part of the local Tunisian and international observers who've been following Tunisian politics felt that I was surprised. I mean, I personally was not really surprised because this person was leading in the poll. People were talking about him. But there was a certain type of deny. People didn't believe that such a person can be popular. And maybe among their circles, he was not popular. So I would say it was not a big surprise. What was a surprise was maybe that he was able to be the front runner as number one, not number two, as the poll suggested. Um, and how he was able to reach such position without having to build a formal campaign as it's commonly as commonly seen in in the West or more recently in Tunisia. He doesn't have a formal campaign team. He didn't raise funds. And even online, he doesn't have until now an official Facebook page or anything. So that was probably the big surprise, is how was he able to maintain and to even increase his uh, position without using the traditional techniques used by politicians to run for presidential election. And no small detail, he had no party behind him. He's completely independent. He even refused uh, to get the public funding because uh, candidates have the right to get public funding from the state. And he refused. So, and, and he, that's and he came in at what twenty percent of the vote? How much did he get? Yeah, almost nineteen percent, eighteen point nine, something like that. Um, no, we have twenty eight, twenty six candidates. Also, that's important things to that's quite, mention. Quite impressive in the field of twenty six to garner almost twenty percent. And Nabil Qarawi came in at a couple of percentages 15, uh, yeah. behind, 15. So now the final round is between the two of them. He's exactly. a, in terms of ideology, he's also a bit of mystery, but he's described as a conservative, not an Islamist per se, but a conservative, mm -hmm. which is an interesting and refreshing, I would say, occurrence in that part of the world. He's conservative, but not identified with any Islamist movement. Other than being anti-establishment, what does he stand for? I mean, you started mentioning that he's for local representation. And what mm -hmm. does this, this kind of conservatism, if it's not religious, what kind of conservatism are we talking about? What makes this guy uh, run for president? So conservatism is a word that has been used by, I personally, in the beginning, what I didn't know who he was exactly, I used it. 
also the word populist has been used and I use it personally. But when we focus on his views and who are around him, it's much more complicated than that. So the reason why the word conservative has been used is because of his position regarding controversial topics like equal inheritance, which is a highly controversial debate that was brought by the former president, uh, Biji Qaid Sibsi, in a more, in a kind of a very politicized way. He was intending to recreate the polarization between Islamist and secularist or laic or, or modernist. The late president was. Yes. Yeah, he was trying uh, to create the, that rift between, on the one hand, the Islamists who are against any modification of the status quo when it comes to mm -hmm personal mm -hmm. and family law, which is largely based on the Sharia, mm -hmm. and the other side, the more progressive side in terms of social mores. I wouldn't say progressive. I wouldn't mm. say progressive to be very clear because progressive has other implications. I'll use these very specific terms of mm. more laic in the French way of secularism more secular. and probably modernist right, in the right. sense of moving toward a European-like modernity. So it's not about well-common understanding of progressive views that would include social and economic justice. It comes much more from this idea of the neutralization of both the public and private sphere from any religious interference, which is not only actually in the legal tradition. There was no monopoly of this branch over the law. Actually, the Tunisian family law since the independence in 1956 was in a big part based on religious texts. So one was to avoid the com strong confrontation between the religious establishment that was existing at the time and the new political elites. But also we should take in consideration the fact that the Tunisian population is 90-something percent Muslim, and when it comes to this kind of topics, such as equal inheritance or, or for example, sexual freedom in a more general way, not limited to LGBTQ rights, the dominant understanding of religion tend to be conservative. So to go back to Qaisis Ayyid, he's not starting from the same point of view as the Islamists who are in favor of a transformation of the society in a more religious way, he's actually just reflecting what is already there, which is a certain form of social conservatism that was existing if we go back, for example, to 20 years ago in Western countries, the debate on, on uh, LGBTQ rights was not as developed as today. Certain topics like, for example, death penalty in Tunisia Death penalty was not enforced uh, since the early 90s. So bringing back this topic is controversial in countries like the US. It's not controversial. You would find even people who would identify as liberals and still in favor of the, of the preservation of such penalties. So I think that the word conservatism is not really the best way to describe it. And I would even add to that a very important factor. So his informal campaign manager, because he doesn't have a former campaign manager, he's actually a radical leftist. He has many radical leftists in his team who are, some of them are Trotskyists, other councilists, other or even anarchists. So 
he personally doesn't identify with any political trend or political group. For him, I would say it's kind of a mix of different things. And that's what kind of make him mysterious. And many people are still try finding some difficulties to understand his views and to put him in a specific box. So one thing that seems to clearly distinguish him is this idea of local representation, which puts him at odds with the current system, the status quo, mm -hmm. National Assembly, and all that. Tell us more about what his ideas are on that front. So according to him, the system of representation as it currently exists, representative democracy, where people would run on party lists and be elected as members of parties and not as individuals for the views of their parties, not of their own views, is failed to represent the real will of the people or the general will. There is no accountability. People tend to even leave their political party after they are elected. So there are many problems that he brings up. And he suggests a different form of state architecture and state design that is more, uh, that can be described as a bottom-up construction of the national representative institution. So at the very local level, there will be a selection of people who would be represent, who would represent what we call Laimeda, or I can just to simplify it, say the kind of neighborhood. And then there, is, there are elections that happen at the regional level and then at the national level, where it allows the certain local representative to end up at the, forming the national parliament. And the idea has some roots in leftist councilism, Rosa Luxembourg, but also the idea of the representation of the general will without the formation of political parties finds some roots also in, in Rousseau's understanding of the social contract. So he's bringing up this new form of state design that is very unusual, and it seems that his supporters and his voters are interested in this kind of project because it allows a better representation of the Tunisian population in, at the national level. It also prevents the capture of certain of these institutions by specific interests, whatever it's private corporatist interest or by a dominant ideological group. These are the broad lines of his project, I think. That's a very interesting idea, intriguing idea, given the regional disparities in Tunisia. You have areas that are relatively prosperous and others that are not doing well at all. So it's interesting that in this context, someone like Sayyid would come and say, well, let's give uh, more representation to every region. Where is he from, by the way? His family springs from which part of Tunisia? Well, he's been living in, in uh, Tunis since he's born, basically. I don't know exactly from where his family comes from in terms of descent, which is usually an important factor in Tunisian politics because, for example, the Minister of Defense, Abkir Mizbidi, who was running uh, in the first round, was from, uh, from the what we call Sahel, from Mahdiya, so he got the support of his region. There is this kind of historical narrative on the competition between the elites from Tunis and the, from the Sahel. The Sahel for non-Tunisians is which region exactly? The is, coast. Is is the the, coast. Okay. It's yeah. a part of the coast, to be more specific, between um, south of 
حمامات until the north of Sfeqa. So Mahdiya, Sus and Monastir. Okay, so. Uh, but him, he, so he's actually born in Nihyar, which is in the governorate of Nabil, which is not very far from the capital. But he was raised in Tunis and he taught in Sus, which is in Sahel. But he doesn't really identify with the specific region in this in the way some political actors historically did more specifically uh, Bourguiba who was from Monastir and who gave a priority to Monastir in terms of development when he was president. So the northeastern part of the coast of Tunisia is where historically the the elites have sprung from and this guy is also from there, but he doesn't seem to identify. With, with no, he's, we, he's not really from there, even though Nebel is not considered as Sahel. Sahel is, uh, I mean, even though it's in the coast formally, mm-hmm. but Sahel is a technical word, let's say, that we, which is kind of jargon, local political jargon that we use to talk about these three specific governorates Mestir, Munastir, uh, Sous, and Mahdiya. He's not from any of them. He just taught at at Sousa's specific time, but he's from another part of the coast that is not as political as this part. So unlike his rival, who is now in prison, Nabil Qarawi, uh, and Mm -hmm. he's in prison under suspicion of money laundering, no less, Qais Sayyid is seen as independent, obviously, of previous parties, and as such, Mm -hmm. he must have more credibility and the fight against corruption. Do you see this fight against corruption potentially advanced and enhanced under his watch if he wins power? I would say yes, but not because he's he's running on an anti-corruption agenda or anything, but because there are lawsuits against a significant number of of MPs, current MPs, more than 60, that are pending. So they've been accused and charged of corruption, but since they have a parliamentary immunity, they were not prosecuted. So if they don't, if they, if these uh, corrupt uh, politicians fail to regain their seats in the parliament, it's highly possible that they end up like Nabil Qari, for example, right now. So the question is, to what extent judges will feel safe to prosecute prominent and influential politicians. Because there are several legal cases that are already there, well-documented, but politicians usually have the support of the protection of the president or the prime minister of the pol- or the political group to which they belong in a more general way. So during the next years, it's very likely that we will see other arrests of important political figures who have been involved in corruption. So as an outsider, he seems to have a freer hand than somebody who has been there, maybe feeding the same trough as everybody else. And Nahda, the Islamist party, which still has the largest representation in the parliament and represents a large part of the Tunisian public, having lost the first round with their candidate who came in third and therefore is eliminated from the final Round and Nahda has endorsed Qais Said for the second round. What does that say about this potential alliance, or what does it say in terms of the women's rights, gay rights, and all that? You mentioned earlier that 
he's very conservative and there may be one reason why they're endorsing him i don't think that this is actually what defines the alliances historically we've never had any any president who was in favor of sexual freedom at all so i don't think that we should use the word conservatism in the way it has been used in the media to analyze the dynamics that we're seeing right now i don't think it's that relevant but it is important to mention that in some people in Nahda were considering supporting Qaisas Aid since at least March 2019. But these people don't belong to the dominant group within Nahda that is centered around the leader of the party and its founder, Rashid Ghanoushi. They belong to a more revolutionary trend within the movement or is against, for example, corroborating with the former regime, more in favor of taking clear stances regarding corruption and not being as lenient as moderate Rajd Ghanoushi. The leader what, of Nada, yes. Exactly, exactly. So what this endorsement tells us about the di- political dynamic is Tunisia is more about the internal dynamic within Nada rather than the relations between different political groups. So during the last few years, we saw the emergence of different factions within Nahda. So it's not as homogeneous as it used to be before. Many leaders are splitting from the clan of Rajd Ghanoushi, critiquing him. So what we saw today reflects to a certain extent the... Uh, these divisions, uh, what we saw today, in meaning the the endorsement of Kaisas Aid, who was the favorite candidate of other people than Ganushi. So they ended up kind of winning now. So I wonder what will be the position of Rashid Ganushi in the future when he will be elected in the in the parliament because he's running he's running in the parliamentary elections in October six. So to answer to your question briefly, I don't think that his endorsement tells a lot on the relation between Qais Said and Nahda. It tells much more about what's going on within the Islamist party. Ghanoushi, the leader of the Nahda, would not be inclined to endorse him. For what reason? Because he's more anti-system than Rajd Ghanoushi. Rajd Ghanoushi is more in favor of integration of another within the already existing elites rather than entering in a confrontation in the same way they they did before. So Kaisa Said he's clearly an anti-establishment candidate. I don't think that Kanushi is, for example, supportive of Kaisa Said's idea of the reshape of the state and this new bottom-up state architecture. Even people who don't belong to the same group as Ghanoushi were also very hesitant. They critiqued it, they didn't buy into his project, but they think that he is a better candidate than Nabil Karwi. Nabil Karwi is not a stable political actor. He's been moving around in different political parties. He's been at certain moments anti-Islamist clan and then he took um, a more lenient uh, stance toward the Nahda and developed more kind of friendship relation with Ghanoushi. So he's not reliable as an ally. And it's better for them or it's safer to work with someone who is not backed by a political party and who might be, in their views, a weaker 
president who can maybe, in their views, accept what Nahda wants to do. And I don't think it is the case, but certain leaders of Nahda think that Qais Aid is not as strong and he can't really resist to the power of Nahda if they, if they gain a strategic position in the parliament. Of the two candidates, both of them have been described as populists. One, Qais Saeed, who came in first, is completely independent, has not been in any parties, uh, seems to have his own ideas on how to refashion government to be more representative of, of the different people in different regions. The other one is in prison. He is seen as a populist, even though he's a strong member of the elite, the ruling elite. He's been in government. He has his own media channel. He's friends with Berlusconi. <laughs> He's one of those type of populists. And he doesn't seem to stand for anything obvious. He's very pragmatic. He goes back and forth according to the political winds. So we have a contrast between two different types here. One who's sort of a professional politician and a businessman. And he's in jail. And the other one seems to be more of a different sort. He's independent. So what they have in common is that people are, seem to be tired of the old elites. The established political parties in Tunisia have been rebuffed, winning less than half of the total votes. A similar outcome we, has been obtaining in other countries worldwide, among them France, Italy, UK, Brazil, Algeria, Sudan. And there was also a very low turnout in the election in Tunisia. Do you see what happened last week? This disaffection of the public towards the political elites as part of a global trend. Yes, this argument has been made that we're just seeing the re-emergence, the emergence of populist politicians, the same way that happened in, in, in the US with Trump or in France with the rise of the National Front, the UK and others. So I would put... Uh, Karwi in this box because all these people like Trump being a business person, the entertainment industry, who belongs to the economic elites of the country and who has a political party, who worked within who integrated the Republican Party and using the machine of the of the of the Republican Party to gain power by adopting an anti-elite discourse as if he don't belong to them. This is what we usually call populism is the idea of having a certain rhetoric that allows to have access to power. In the case of Karwi, it's, it is the case. But in the case of Sayyid, it's not really the case because he's not, he doesn't really belong to the established political elite or the business elite. He's a university professor who being critiquing the decisions, specific decisions taken taken by the past revolution elite in its rise, and he's coming from the position of the intellectual who has clear views about the the failure of the what we can call the system. So some people would say that he belonged to a form of more radical form of populism that is that self-assumes and accepts 
or identify as populist, but himself he doesn't. According to him, he doesn't belong to any political current. So he rejects the the brand of populism. And I don't think that his personality or even his movement, because he's not running alone, he has his whole group and network of grassroots organizers who are supporting him. I don't think we can compare them with um, the populists that we saw in in Western countries more recently. So it's uh, more in the line of the revolutionary movement that we saw in 2011, something that wants to bring down a system and not only the elite as individuals. We didn't see, for example, Trump uh, wanting to destroy the American establishment and to build a new form of state, for example. He just integrated himself within the already existing elites. And it's not, so it's not about individuals in this case. It's about the way the political system is structured and designed. So we can call him maybe anti-establishment or anti-system, but I don't think that anti-elite or, or populist captures the complexity of what we're seeing today in Tunisia. Right. My point was that the common thread is not so much the populism or the type of populism, but the common thread seems to be popular disaffection with the status quo. That we seem to see pretty much across borders, almost everywhere. People are getting tired of the same old recipes. But it's true that the media, and certainly the, the Western media, like to put in the same bag populists a la Trump or Bolsonaro or Berlusconi, and the people, people are progressives like Bernie Sanders or, uh, or Corbyn in the UK, they like to confuse people and say, well, you know, they're all populists. Mm -hmm. They all stand for the same thing, which I think is, is purposeful. They're trying to keep people from voting left. So you're saying this Saeed has some people who are progressives or, or at least they're, you know what to call them, left socialists. Well, I would say even more than that. They, they are, like I said earlier, some of them are Trotskyists and councilists and, and anarchists, and his informal campaign manager is known under the nickname of Rida Lenin. So <laughs> it's, we're really talking here about the far left that split it from the more traditional communists, let's say. So there, are, there will be on the left of the historical the Communist Party of the workers in of Tunisia. They'll be on their left. And it's interesting that they are part of his team. Does that signal some possibilities in terms of... I know you explained to us the last time that president does not directly have influence on the economy, but he could help build some forces, some coalitions. Is there a chance that part of this tendency to want more representation for the people indicates that he's also, economically speaking, more progressive. Yes, I think even though the president is not really in charge of the economic policies, the fact that he's in charge of foreign policy means a lot. So Tunisia has been negotiating a new free trade agreement, a highly contested free trade agreement with the EU. So uh, I don't think that Qaisa Saeed or those who belong to the radical left who are with him would accept such a deal. And that's actually one of the main concerns of the EU right now. Same thing regarding his foreign policy 
at the global level. So we've came, we've came found online lecture or conference where video of a conference where Kai Said is comparing his project of state design to the Venezuelan one in a conference on solidarity with Venezuela. I mean, this is not related to economic policies, but since Tunisia will be in the UN Security Council during the next two years, this will be interesting. Also, to go, to go back to economic policies, the idea of a third program with the IMF has been on the table and is discussed among people in the government. And so I don't think that those who are with side would be in favor of such a, such a decision. So even though they can't probably or they don't have the power to present certain economic reforms or develop certain economic policies that reflects their leftist views, I think they can have an influence on the economic relation of Tunisia with other countries and other multinational organizations. Mohamed Hammami is a U.S.-based Tunisian scholar, and he spoke with Khalil Bendit. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. spring broke out in Tunisia in late 2010 and 2011, some Western commentators credited social media as the detonator that empowered Tunisian masses, reinforcing social media hegemon's self-serving narrative according to which they are a vector for freedom and democracy everywhere, notwithstanding their sketchy track record in the U.S. and elsewhere. Nine years later, how does a popular movement like the current Algerian uprising and social media behemoths such as Facebook interface? One Silicon Valley-based Algerian activist, Camila Kraba, reports how, when it comes to pro-democracy struggles, Facebook seems to be more a part of the problem than part of the solution. Far from being pro-people, or at the very least, neutral, Facebook has been systematically lending its support to golf-based fake accounts designed to sabotage Algeria's pro-democracy movement. Camila, the popular Algerian uprising, or peaceful revolution as many are calling it, began seven months ago in February, and has been exemplary so far in its non-violent nature. For seven months, millions of Algerians have gone to the streets and demonstrated week after week, through uh, rain and, and heat wave and, and what have you, through Ramadan, nothing stopped them so far. And they have obtained major concessions from the regime, among them the resignation of longtime President Abdelaziz Bouteflika, postponement of presidential elections, and the incarceration of some of the most powerful and corrupt figures of the regime. 
why are the Algerians still uh, dissatisfied? It's good that uh, you gave us that outline. The thing is, Algerians are more aware of the actual situation. And they know, uh, for example, when you talked about the incarceration of what they call the Isaba, which is literally the mafia running the country, they know that uh, people have been put in jail not because they have uh, embezzled a huge amount of public money, but because they were threat to uh, the current, I think they call him the vice minister of defense, uh, who is running the country actually today. Gay Saleh. Uh, Gay Saleh. So Algerians know. They know that uh, what, what has happened is not because of the benefit of the country, but it's in the benefit of another Isaba. Like we are replacing one mafia with another mafia. So nothing has changed. So it's still basically the same regime, except that some different clans have taken over. Exactly. And uh, we're still dealing with the same basic problem. Camila, like many Algerians in the diaspora, you have been following the events very closely, and you have even become involved. Yes. Uh, tell us uh, briefly about the nonprofit website you have created to support the movement, the Hirak, as we, we call it in Algeria, the pro-democracy movement in Algeria. Yeah, thanks for the question, uh, Khalil. So when the Hirak started back in uh, February 22nd of this year, you know, I thought, oh, finally, the people are asking for something. So now is the time. Uh, for change, because you cannot change something if people are not requesting for that change. But now that they are asking for it, then it's time to help them. So I was wondering, us being literally 7,000 miles away, how can we help? And I figured the best way we can is by making available to Algerians whatever skills that we have acquired uh, by working and living here in a country that is ruled by uh, law and a country that has very solid institutions that are bigger than any one person, this is what we can show them. And really... It may be it, uh, relative <laughs> when you compare the two oh, yes. perhaps a little bit yes. better, but uh, yes. even here it's being... <laughs> It's been thrown right, into a right. question, unfortunately. You're right, but <laughs> but the institutions are something that you know people can be can be just as corrupt wherever they are. But having the institutions that can hold people accountable, that have a way of you know doing the checks and balances, these are the things that can sustain a democracy over time. Not strong people, you see, mm-hmm. and that's the the type of knowledge that we wanted to transfer. So that's the reason, that's what generated the, uh, the need to create what the non-profit organization, it's actually a non-profit corporation, Rebuilding Algeria. In any war or revolution, any major conflict, communications are an essential part of the battle. And in Algeria, it is quite a delicate affair, given that three languages are commonly used in different regions and, and in different walks of life. Considering how the government, really emulating the unfortunate example of the colonial empire before it, the government's been traditionally using the language difference to divide and conquer the Algerian people. How do grassroots activists such as Emir, who we're going to talk about in 
and Karim, how do these people who are talking to the entire Algerian people, how do they navigate this complexity without alienating one or the other region of Algeria? You see, the beautiful thing about this Herak, the movement is called the Herak by Algerians, is referred to as a Herak. The beautiful thing is that the um, information that was put out there about the different scandals at all levels is so powerful that it has united everybody. And you hear some of the slogans when they go out in the street. They tell the regime, it's either you or us. There is no going back. There is something much stronger than uh, the, you know, the difference in either ethnic backgrounds or linguistic. Yeah, it's there is something much more powerful because you have to see some of these stories are absolutely horrific and they touch everybody regardless of where they come from. or They touch everybody equally. It's just horrendous. Give us an example of some of the Algerian opposition grassroots activists who have come under attack. There's been a, a Facebook slash social media battle going between the government, the, the regime, and the grassroots opposition. And that has translated in some interesting battles over the web. Saudi Arabia and the UAE have been acting a bit like colonial empires in North Africa, spreading their influence through social media and through their money, their immense wealth. Uh, we saw some of that in, during the revolution in Libya and Egypt, we see that. Now in Algeria as well, of course, is Yemen. And the most unfortunate example is Yemen. Why, in your opinion, would forces in the UAE and Saudi Arabia go to the trouble to fund and fake news operations in Algeria? Give us an example of some of these messages advanced by democracy activists and some of the backlash that it has generated at the hands of these forces in the Gulf. I started to kind of dig a little bit deeper in what is really happening, what are the different forces that are uh, pulling the strings in what is happening in Algeria. The good thing is you discover much, much, much bigger problems like uh, geopolitical wars. So, and the good thing is there is now enough information out there that is kind of and masking these guys. And that's where they are now on the defensive. Apparently, UAE is uh, one of those countries who are today reliant on uh, oil, but they understand that they need to have uh, alternatives to oil. And one of the alternatives is to make sure that you have control over Africa. Africa is a huge continent and there's a lot of countries that have a lot of resources. So if you're not confident or you don't have enough resources of your own, what do you do? You go and take over somebody else's resources. That, that's the traditional definition of war. But uh, except that now the wars are a little bit more sophisticated where people don't have to uh, be physically in the land and occupy like before, they can occupy remotely. So today, uh, United Arab Emirates is owning most of the major ports in Algeria. They have been acquiring massive real estate in Algeria. So why are they interfering? They're interfering for their interests. 
They want to make sure that they can preserve the interest that they have in Algeria. And for that, they need to have people in power in Algeria that they can rely on. So give us an example of some of these uh, battles that have been happening. And some start with uh, at least one Algerian grassroots activist who's been quite active and perhaps the backlash he's gotten from from the UAE, as far as you can tell. Camila, you're a high-tech professional living and working in Silicon Valley, so you have some expertise in this type of things, and you'll explain to us how you found out who is doing what and through which means. Absolutely. Uh, who are not techies, you know, it'll be interesting for you to explain the AI dump, as you call it, the fake accounts, the Facebook page transparency concept and all that. So uh, you can imagine being so far away and uh, honestly not very involved in the Algerian affairs before the Herak because uh, things were just completely dormant. So there was really not much to do. But uh, when people started really requesting change and they started putting some uh, devastating information out there about the different abuse of power at all levels. It, it's just absolutely outraging. In Algeria, you mean? Yeah. In Algeria, yes. Mm -hmm. So one thing I wanted to figure out is, okay, for somebody who is so far, how is it possible to distinguish what is true, what is false? Who are the main players here? What is really happening? So, of course, what can somebody in Silicon Valley do? You just go and use technology to figure out answers to this. And I was very lucky. I attended a meetup where a company called, a startup called Marvelous, uh, that specializes in AI. Artificial intelligence. Yes. So what Marvelous does, and I, actually I encourage everybody to look them up, because they uh, can be very useful for the uh, U.S. presidential elections. What they do is they determine the political narrative from the uh, web traffic. So they use uh, natural language processing to figure out, you know, what is the political narrative behind what is being told. And that's extremely fascinating. So I asked them if they could help me with the events in Algeria, and they agreed. It was a challenge for them because things are in Arabic and French, uh, mostly, but they took on the challenge. And after, you know, we set things up, etc., then you can basically literally see what is happening by account through Twitter. And you can see the overall traffic on uh, Google, using Google. It's amazing. And then the very first time when the tool was available and the first dump that I got, uh, which is really like a massive amount of data that you can get and then you can analyze, then you can see that the top tweets are from Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And then when you look, you dig deeper into what the tweets are about, etc., then you can see that basically the narrative that they are putting out there is that the uh, movement in Algeria is managed by uh, the Islamists. So because they know they know what Algeria has gone through in the 90s, and they know that Algerians don't want to hear about Islamists, period. 
Yeah, so then, you're referring to the civil war, almost this, 10 years of bloody yes. civil war at the hands of very, very uh, violent Islamist uh, movements in Algeria and the government also, which was also quite, exactly, quite brutal. Yes. Yes, it's called the the Black Destiny. Yeah. So that one, they know about it, and they know that Algerians don't want to hear about Islamists anymore. And that's the narrative that they were putting out there to discredit the movement. And I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. And the most interesting thing is that some of the activists that uh, you can see are prominent on Facebook, etc., you can see that that's exactly what they're saying, that they're saying, hey, United Arab Emirates, Saudis, they're interfering in our affairs. Then things really made sense because what these activists are saying and what the narratives that Saudis and the Emiratis are putting out there, they actually match. So that means there is truth in what these activists are saying. So I started paying a lot more attention. And one of them, Amir Dezed, he is an absolutely incredible guy. I mean, the nature of the information that he puts out there is just absolutely incredible. And one of the information, so you'd see pictures of Gayed Saleh in the United Arab Emirates. To remind our listeners, Gayed Saleh is the current strongman in Algeria, who's the focus right now of a lot of discontent, people are trying to displace him displaces regime. He's gotten rid of Bouteflika, the president, but he remains. And he's been shown to, to have uh, some good, perhaps discreet contacts with countries in the Gulf. Tell us more about that. Yeah, Yeah. so that's that's exactly the type of information that somebody like Emir Dezed would ex- was exposing. And then the next thing you know is, so what these activists do, they have um, accounts on Facebook And then they go live. They use the Facebook live feature where you can literally broadcast. And that's how they get massive audiences. I mean, somebody like uh, Amir, when he goes live, the moment he starts, he he can easily have 10,000 people. I mean, so they're very influential folks. But then you see, I mean, they are, the battle for their account is amazing. Their accounts don't stay up too long. And then what you have, you have an army, literally an army of what they call electronic flies, which are bogus accounts, like one person having 100 accounts. And they go and start reporting a website as being adult content website or whatever, you know, some stupid stuff. And then, of course, Facebook don't ask me why they go and shut down that uh, website without checking anything, without figuring out, hey, am I dealing with uh, real complaints or am I dealing with bots? So we've been, that's uh, another thing that we've been dealing with is just uh, Facebook and the way it is handling this uh, political battle on the web. So you have someone like Amir DZ. DZ stands really for Jazair, uh, Algeria. It's a pseudonym, Emir Algeria, who has quite a bit of following on Facebook. He manages to bypass the official broadcast media in Algeria. And immediately you have these mysterious fake accounts that come to the surface through Facebook to try to sabotage his message, to try to silence him. And as a result, it's the actual account the real authentic person 
who gets shut down and not the, the fake accounts. Exactly. You know, there's even something more perverse that, hap- that happens on, on Facebook. And I, we've been reporting this over and over. And Facebook turned out to be uh, a very challenging company to deal with. Uh, to be honest, it was a huge disappointment. I mean, we are in the tech industry. We work in tech companies. And we know that there is social responsibility is one of the uh, biggest tenets of any company I've worked for, but it doesn't seem to be the case at Facebook. So let me give you just a little bit more uh, details of what happens, just for the listeners to understand just how perverse things are at Facebook. So the way it happens is, so somebody like Amir, so he has an account that has, say, for example, 2 million uh, followers. So you have these electronic flies that bombard Facebook with reporting the uh, the website. So not only they do that, but oh my God, the insults, the vulgarity of the language that they use, horrible. So every time he speaks, there's a barrage of insults. So Facebook ends up shutting down that account, although the reporting is really fake and they know that they know that's the most amazing thing how do you know that they are aware they know because you look at the fake news so they say how many of the fake news have been appealed uh, how many of the fake accounts have been appealed and uh, how many uh, facebook restored and you see it's blank i'm like come on we have been appealing So at least acknowledge that they don't even acknowledge the problem. So Facebook does not delete anything in the back end. Everything is there. So they know exactly what IP addresses are writing. And with the IP address, you can know exactly where these guys are located. And you can see that one IP address has multiple email addresses assigned to it. I see it myself because I do manage websites and I see it myself. I see one IP address having like 100 email addresses and that same email address, uh, that uh, same IP address with so many different email addresses, they go and just use absolutely horrendous language to kind of bring you down and then just make you go away. So I know that Facebook knows. So what they do, Khalil, is after they shut down, so you have one account uh, run by Amir, they said himself the real account Mm. yeah the real account and then it has two million followers and then facebook shuts down the account and then the next thing you know the account is now that same handle which is the username for example emir dz username emir dz now is no longer with emir and it's now used by some entity And then when you look at the page transparency to see who is managing the account, what do you see? For all you know, United Arab Emirates. I say, wow. So this is so dangerous because just imagine, I am one of the followers of Emir. So my name, my email address is there. And then all of a sudden, my information is with somebody that I I don't agree with. And he has now my contact info. So just imagine the damage that they can do, especially in regimes like Algerian regimes where they can go and then make people disappear 
So how can Facebook do something like this? Camila Kroba is a Silicon Valley-based Algerian activist with extensive experience and in-depth expertise in product development and program management. She spoke with Khalil Bendib. You can reach Camila through Rebuilding Algeria at rebuildingalgeria.org. That's rebuildingalgeria.org. You can hear the extended version of this interview on our SoundCloud page and learn more about this project by following us on Twitter at Vomina Radio. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. <laughs> An important art auction benefit for the democracy movement in Algeria will take place tomorrow, Saturday, September 28th, at Hoke Park at Twilight Drive and Oak Avenue in San Jose. This event will be from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m., and all funds will go towards Hirok events. There will be also a bake sale, as well as music and arts by local Algerian artists. For more information, please visit dzunited.org. That's dzunited.org. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Izin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio, or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at Radio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Thank you.